to be as close to Christ as we can possibly get. And the best way to do that is to start with the Word. In Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus taken out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's taken out into the midst of this wilderness. He's been in the midst of a fast and he's hungry and he's weak. No doubt tired and hot. And the devil, the enemy, comes after him and launches this full-on offensive. But the picture that we get of Jesus is a striking one. Jesus doesn't sit there allowing the, the enemy to land haymaker after haymaker with his arms behind his back. Instead, what we see in Christ is we see Christ swinging back. Every temptation that the enemy brings to him, Christ Jesus responds back with a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. A quote from the word of God undermining the deception, undermining the foolishness of what the enemy is saying. When we come into Revelation 19, Jesus reappears, but this time on the back of his victory horse. And it says that coming forth out of his mouth is a sword, a sharp, two-edged sword, so sharp, so strong, so mighty that it is capable of striking down the nations. So is it any wonder why when we go to Ephesians 6 last week, the one offensive weapon that we are given among the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But brothers and sisters, I ask us this morning, if the survival of our faith and the survival of our families and the survival of our church and the survival of this generation depends upon how well we are able to wield the sword of the word, will we in fact survive? Will we in fact persevere? Will we be able to stand fast? How many quotes from the book of Deuteronomy do you have in the, in the treasury? How much wisdom from the word can you stand in front of your family and fight with? How much competence from the word of God can you stand shoulder to shoulder in the foxhole of this cosmic war with your brothers and sisters in the faith and fight admirably to defeat the enemy? Brothers and sisters, our first core value at Iron City is to start with the word because the word is the sword that has been given to us in the midst of this battle that we might not only strike down our victory but that we might live in triumph. So this morning what I want us to do is I want us to examine what it means to be a mature man or woman of the word. Remember our vision, right? Our vision, we are maturing and multiplying disciples to the ends of the earth. So what does it mean to be a mature, or how is it that we can become a mature man or woman of the faith? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. 
Stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. Hebrews is toward the end of the New Testament. Toward the end of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 5. If you don't have your Bibles, you can read with us on the screen. We're going to begin in verse 11 and just read to verse 14. Man, that's a, that's a short passage for us here, huh? So uh, all you said, amen. Probably not a short sermon, but a short passage, right? So uh, you guys were here when we did a long sermon on one verse. So, you know, we got it, go, we got it going on, baby. All right, verse 11. God's word says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. Hebrews is, in fact, a long sermon. It's written, given to us by an anonymous author. We really don't know who wrote it. If you were to ask me, I think probably it was either Paul or an associate of Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews. But Hebrews is a sermon, and it is a sermon being delivered to Jewish Christians, those that, were, that come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that now have seen how Christ has been made manifest as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, which all of the Old Testament had been testifying to and pointing toward. You know, and just as a side note, I want to make sure that you guys know Jews and, and Hebrews, those are the same people, okay? Someone told me long, not long ago, it was a, a mature person in the church, and they're like, I grew up in, my, in the church for 40 years, I never knew that Jews and the Hebrews were the same people, okay? So let, let that not be our error, okay? Jews and the Hebrews are the same people. And so you have this sermon being preached and being written to this group of Jewish Christians that they might be able to understand better how the the Old Testament was a shadow of the things that were to come in the New Testament. A shadow of the things that were to come in Christ Jesus. And, And the author here begins to talk about Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is a kind of makes this all of a sudden kind of jumps onto the scene appearance in the, in, in the book of Genesis. And he is a unique figure in that he is a priest that is also a king. And so in the book of Hebrews, the, the author is going to be making the, 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 the case of how glorious it is, how spectacular it is that Jesus is not a priest in the line of Aaron, but Jesus is a priest in the line of Melchizedek. But in the midst of this argument, he pauses. He pauses. It's as if he's preaching and the thought springs into his mind. That as glorious as it is that Jesus is not just some priest, but he is the great high priest. And he's not just the great high priest, but he is simultaneously the king. In the midst of this, it jumps into his mind that that this Hebrew church will not be able to appreciate the glory of it. That it will not provoke them. To worship, It will not provoke them to greater faithfulness. It will not bring up in them just this wellspring of passion and, and, and awe and wonder because they haven't went deep enough to see it yet. They haven't went, went they, haven't, they don't understand the scriptures enough. They don't understand the basics of the gospel enough to know why it is that Jesus being in the line of Melchizedek is spectacular. And so he stops for a moment to rebuke them. 
to rebuke them and to challenge them. To rebuke them for their immaturity and to call them into greater depth. To rebuke them for their incompetence in the word and to call them into greater competence in the word. I wonder how many of us this morning can revel in the glory that Jesus is from the Melchizedekian line. And maybe you roll your eyes when I say that. And you go, where's our preacher using them Scrabble words again, right? But the truth is, this is exactly what they're being rebuked for. This is exactly what they're being called out for. This is exactly the, the, the grounds for which the author of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, is challenging the church. And so if we roll our eyes to that, if, if in our minds we think, man, I've been a Christian for 15 years, I have no idea what that means, then the author of Hebrews is talking to us. He's talking to us. He's challenging us. He's graciously calling us out so that we might know greater glory. So that we might experience greater depths of worship and awe and wonder of the Lord. But there's a big picture principle here. There's a big picture principle here, and I, and I don't want you to miss it. And the big picture principle that I think that we can kind of garner from this is that persistent immaturity is abnormal in the church. Persistent immaturity is abnormal in the Christian life. Now, I use the word persistent on purpose there. I use it very purposefully. Because you'll notice what Paul said. I'm not Paul, perhaps Paul. You'll notice what he says in the, here. He says, by this time you ought to be teachers, right? By this time. In other words, there is a time in which it's okay to be immature, there is a, a time in which it is okay to, to drink in the milk and to love the milk and to be holding fast to the milk carton, right? I can think of right now of a brother in my life that he was baptized just a few months ago and it is not uncommon for him to just kind of pick up the phone and say, the Bible says what? Like, I was reading this man and I came across this and the Bible, the Bible does, it, does it mean what I think it means? Like, is this really what it's telling me to do here? He'll call me sometimes. It'll be him and his wife on speakerphone. and be like, hey, man, talk to us here. What's going down? And, y'all, I take, I take such amazing worship in that. Isn't that amazing? That, that raw, do you remember when you were early in your faith? And you're like, Satan? Who's Satan? That's some punk. I'll take him down. Right? Let him bring it on, baby. Like you're sitting on in church, and you go out, and you buy your, your new little moleskin. You got your new ink pen poked in. You got your, your, your brand new Bible that you can't even, it's so new, you can't even let it stay open. You got your Bible cover. You got, you're sitting on the front row. Man, you're writing down everything. You don't even know what it means. You're just writing it down in case one day you want to come back to it and figure it out, right? It's beautiful. That's as beautiful as when you bring home an infant from the hospital. And everybody gathers around, and it just brings everybody closer, and everybody just sits there in awe and wonder. It brings everybody, makes everybody just for a second just feel joy and feel, 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 I hope the Lord always has a heavy dosage of baby Christians in our church. May the Lord always see that we are a church in which he can, he can save people and bring baby Christians that are, are filled with raw 
passion because we need that here. Mature Christians, Christians that have been Christians for a while, we need to look back at the baby Christians and to see their passion and their zeal and their excitement and their energy and be, be challenged by it, right? But what he says is why as beautiful as that is for a little while, it's abnormal if it remains that way. It's abnormal. It's weird. It's sin. To persist in immaturity, to normalize immaturity in your life, to normalize immaturity in your family, to normalize immaturity in your church is devastating. It's wicked. It's sinful. It's the person that says, you know, I don't really read the Bible like I ought to. You know, who does? It's the person that says, you know, I know that I'm saved and that's just good enough for me. I don't really worry about all of those, that deep stuff. What are they saying? They're saying, this is normal. This is okay. This, this, is, this is just what we do in the church. This is what we do in my church. We're not going to worry about being those radical Christians. We're not going to worry about being those extreme Christians that like go on mission trips and stuff and like memorize the Bible. We're not going to worry about that so much because we're saved and that's enough. So that's just normal. And we're just going to remain kind of on this surface level Christianity. This, this, we're going to persist in this immaturity so that we don't get called into something deep like the missionaries do. Paul, or the, the author of Hebrews, is looking at, the, I'm going to say Paul a hundred times. You guys are just going to have to bear with me. He's looking at him and he's saying, God help you. God help you. You see, as beautiful as it is to watch and look at a baby who eats like a baby, and talks like a baby, and thinks like a baby, and behaves like a baby, if you see a grown man who eats like a baby and thinks like a baby and talks like a baby and behaves like a baby, you would consider him to be diseased or disabled. Brothers and sisters, look in the mirror. What do you see? What do you see? What tenets of the Christian faith can you articulate? What scriptures can you, can you pull out of the storehouse of your life? Are you growing in maturity of the word? Are you growing in maturity in, the, in, in, the, in doctrine and in theology? Are you growing in maturity in how you apply it in your life? Are you growing and maturing and strengthening so that you can stand firm as a man? Or are you still thinking and behaving and doing and reading and memorizing as a child? Because the New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who gets enough of God. The New Testament knows nothing of a Christian who has, the, has reached the level of word understanding and word competence in the, and has explored the depths of God to the point where they can say, now I'm here, I've arrived, I'm over it. Brothers and sisters, we must not persist in our immaturity. 
We must confess it to the Lord. We must seek out brothers and sisters who can help us in it, who can rebuke us in it, who can hold us accountable to it. We must repent, turn away from it, and run as close to Christ, as deep into the word as we can go. The rebuke the author uses is that they ought to be teachers right now, but they are hardly students. He says that that by this time, you ought to be teachers. Now, we understand that teacher in the context of the New Testament can be kind of an official call on your life, right? That, 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 That the Lord, through the Spirit, gifts some people with a unique ability to teach the Word of God, to have insight into the Word of God and to, to, to teach it to others in a way that can bring change in their life and, and make them wholly different. And man, I think that's awesome, but I don't think that's what he's talking about here. That in Hebrews 5, when he says that we ought to be teachers, he's not saying that, that by this time you ought to be teaching a Sunday school class. He's saying by this time you ought to be able to teach other people what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. That the call of Hebrews 5 is not to call you into the classroom. The call to Hebrews cha- in Hebrews chapter 5 is for you to become a disciple maker. It is for you to take up the cross and to follow after Jesus. It is for you to take up the great commission as your own. The call here is for you to know the faith and to grow in the faith and to grow in the word so that then you can go in turn and teach it to your children. Teach it to your wife or your husband. To teach it to the people at work. To teach it to to those to whom the Lord has made you responsible. This is a call to discipleship that is intended to take you deeper yourself. So that you can say, follow me, imitate me as I go after Christ. Let me go deep so that then I can take you deep. You see, this could be written today... Just as truly as it was written however many thousands of years, over 2,000 years ago, right? This can be written to us today. Because in the church, there is this cycle of immaturity that is taking place, isn't there? There is one generation that doesn't know, one generation that hasn't went deep. And so the next generation is not being taught, which the next generation is not being taught. And there's this spiraling effect because there are so few mature Christians in the churches to take the other people deep that the immaturity just perpetuates and persists. Brothers and sisters, you know what my dream is? My dream is that we would be a church of teachers. That we would be a church of teachers. That we would be a church where every single member's goal is to grow in the gospel. That you might teach one another and strengthen one another and benefit one another to the good of the kingdom. That you would be able to articulate the gospel. That you would be able to articulate clear tenets of the faith. That you would be able to to quote and recite the promises of God and the prophecies fulfilled in the Christ. That you would be able to, to recollect what the word says that Christ is coming again and what that means and the implications of it. That we would be teachers of the word that can explain to people not just what the Bible says but how that actually impacts our lives. Church, how will our children know if we don't know ourselves? 
How will we go across the way and teach our children to follow after Jesus with everything they've got when we don't even know what Jesus has told us to do? How will we tell a young married couple the way that their marriage is supposed to reflect and make clear the gospel if we aren't really sure how marriage and the gospel intersect ourselves? How is it that we are, we are to explain the difference to a retired person between a, a God-centered retirement and a self-centered one? If we don't know what the word says, and if the word is not in our hearts, and the word has not transformed our minds, and the word has not strengthened our discernment, then we are left vulnerable, brothers and sisters. The truth of the matter is, is that the church of today has been handicapped by disabled Christians that have not grown in the word, but instead live as spiritual infants with spiritually infant, impotent knowledge. The only hope we have of handing the baton of Iron City off to the next generation is if we grow in the wisdom of the Lord. If we grow in competence of wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If we grow into teachers of the Word who revel in the glory of God and revel in the glory of His Word and live out the glory of His Word and memorize the glory of His Word so that it is, it is sprinkled throughout this body, throughout our homes, throughout our community, throughout our workplaces. Lord, may it not be said of us that we are handicapped as a church body because we have become diseased by spiritual immaturity that is pervasive and persistent among the body. See, our issue today is the same issue that they were having in this day. Do you notice what he says in, uh, in verse uh, verse 11, right out of the gate, he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. So, so really, it even seems like in the forefront of his mind, he says, hearing, at the forefront of his mind is the preached word, right? So this is a preacher who's doing preaching, right? He, he's preaching this, he's delivering it, they're sitting there, they're listening, and he's looking out, and you can almost imagine that as this preacher is preaching to them about Melchizedek, they, they, they're just kind of zoning out. If you've ever stood in front of a crowd of people, you know the feeling, all right? There is nothing more defeating as a preacher than to look down and just to see everybody, man, they're already hanging out at Cracker Barrel, already sitting on the rocking chair, already planning out their checker moves, you know? Already thinking about how they're not going to be ignoramus on the little pegboard. That's where the preacher of Hebrews is here. He's looking out, he's talking about Melchizedek, he's talking about the glory, and you can imagine in his mind, man, it's elevating, and his spirit is elevating, and all of a sudden he looks back and everybody else is snoring. And he says, you know what the issue is? As you hear the word of God, as you think of the word of God, you have become dull in your hearing. The word dull can mean slothful. Lazy, negligent. The idea here, when, when the word dull is used in, in regards to, to learning, it is a willful stupidity. 
Here's the picture. Here's what he's saying. That you are so disinterested in what I'm saying. You're so disinterested in the word of God. You're so disinterested in the meat of his word and the deep things of his word that you have instead lazily chosen to remain spiritually stupid. You're not willing to put in the work to learn the glory of this. You're not, you're, not, you're not willing to engage in what's happening. You hear me, but you're not listening. This is like that what, what happens for us, and you, you might can relate to what he's saying, is this is like when the word becomes background noise to you. It's a train that goes by every Sunday that we zone out, right? It's sitting, in a, and it's sitting in a restaurant and you're having a conversation in your, your, with your wife and there's conversations happening all around them and you can hear them but you don't listen to them. You talk to your wife, right? It's hanging out on an elevator and the music that's playing. It's the TV on in the background while you wash the dishes or clean up your house. It's just noise that you can hear but you don't listen to, you don't engage, you're not interested in it and you have no idea what is being said. When it comes to hearing the preached word of God, can you relate to that? Are you dull of hearing? Are you lazily disengaging the things that you haven't heard before, that you don't understand, and just choosing to remain spiritually stupid, spiritually ignorant, spiritually naive? when When you open up your word in the morning, do you go there just wanting to, to check the, 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 the box and to get it out of the way and just reading through it? And as you're reading the Word, literally thinking about everything else that is to come that day. You know, like getting up at 5.30 and reading the Word is off the chain. I want everybody to do that. 4.30, whatever that is for you. But if you get up at 5.30 to read the Bible, but you're already at work thinking about the conversations that you have to have, you really haven't read the Bible. For too many of us, the Bible has become background noise. The Bible has become something that's always there, and we know we should, and we know it's important, but the truth of the matter is, is we just got a lot of other things in our lives that we are more interested in. We have a lot of things in our lives that we are, are prioritizing over the Bible, and it is leaving us spiritually immature. You see, the, the truth of the matter is, is when we disengage the word, whether it's preaching or reading or the teaching of the word, when we disengage from the word, we are saying something about our desire for the Lord. We're saying, God, I have as much of you as I want. I have as much of you as I can handle. I don't want to see anything else about you. I've seen as much beauty as I care to see. I've, I've tasted as much grace as I care to taste. I've experienced as much awe as I want to experience. So just let me be. Let me go about my life. Do my thing. I don't want to sweat that anymore. And I am convinced that perhaps the greatest indictment against the modern church is that we are okay with how little of God we know. Can you imagine if you treated your wife or husband that way? If you went and 
you, you, you dated them and you had the engagement and you, you did the deal, man. You go all the way up to there's a, a white dress and some tuxes and some goofy groomsmen and a preacher up there doing the vows. And you run down the aisle and you get in the car to go to the honeymoon and you're sitting in the car and you tell your wife, you know what, this has been so much fun, I'm just not going to worry about knowing you any better than this. From this day forward, now that you're hooked, and man, we know this happens, amen. Now that you're hooked, you know me as much as you're going to know me, and I know you as much as you know me, as, as I'm going to know you. Let's just be content with what we've got. That's an unhealthy relationship, isn't it? That's a relationship that we would understand is certain to fail. That's a relationship that we would understand is certain to, to lack satisfaction, to lack joy. To lack zeal and passion. To lack discovery and friendship. That is a relationship that is immature. It's puppy love. It's, it's nothing. Yet how often, how often is that the picture of our walk with the Lord? How often is that the picture of our relationship with the word that God has given to us? I want you to understand this morning, brothers and sisters, to be immature in the word is lethal in a cosmic war. Lethal. To be incompetent with your sword is lethal. Lethal. It will kill you. It will destroy you. Can you imagine a soldier handed an M16, a child running to the front lines, and how fast that child would be wiped from the battlefield? And yet every single day in the midst of this cosmic war, we have Christians who are children trying to drag the sword behind them, not even enough strength to pick it up and to wield it, trying to take down the enemy on behalf of their families. Scriptural incompetence is lethal in a spiritual war. Lethal. In Matthew 10, and, and it's fixing to get, this is what he's going headed toward in Hebrews chapter 6. Here's, Jesus tells us that the ones who are his disciples are the ones who endure until the end. The ones who make it to the end. Hebrews chapter 6 is saying the same thing. If you don't make it to the end, you aren't really his. If you can't withstand the fires of persecution, you aren't really his. If, if the hardships of life knock you out of the faith, you were never really his. And what is he saying in chapter 5? How is it that you stand firm? How is it that you were able to press on? How is it you were able to fight this battle and, and persevere? It is with the sword. It is with the, the, the weapon that he has given to you, the word of God. When hardship strikes your marriage, what are you going to do if you don't have the promises of God to get you through? You're going to fall away. When you, when you face miscarriage and infertility, and you don't have the word of God, and you haven't been able to put together in your mind how the gospel and how grace and how mercy and how, how all of this fits together with providence, if you can't put that together in your mind, how will you stand, brothers and sisters? 
When, you're, when your college student comes home and a secular professor has gotten in their brain and you aren't ready to give an account and you aren't ready to slice through the noise with a two-edged sword, how will they stand? When you stand over the casket of your grandchild and, you, and your, your children are weeping and your soul has been sucked out of you, what life-giving, hope-giving words will you have? Brothers and sisters, if you're going to endure until the end, you need the sword. If you're going to persevere, you need the sword. You will die otherwise. This is not a time for children. This is not a, a time in which we need children on the front lines. Iron City, we don't need spiritual children on the front lines of a hellish war. This is a time for warriors. This is a time of men and women of spiritual maturity and spiritual strength and weapon competency. That we are skilled in the words of righteousness as the author of Hebrews says. Skilled. Not unskilled with the sword, but skilled, able to cut through the noise of society. Able to cut through the junk and the political correctness and the confusion and the chaos that is our day. It is to take the sword that is sharper than any two-edged sword and to cut and slice through the marrow. Can I talk to our young men for a second? I'm especially praise the Lord that the Lord has brought so many young men into this body. I am one of you. We are in this together, men. But we live in a day that perpetuates immaturity. We live in a day that, that celebrates that I'm not going to grow up. That celebrates that I can be a grown man hanging out with Xbox. That I can be a, a grown man playing games. Listen to me, brothers. Put down your Xbox and pick up your Bible. Put down your milk carton and pick up your sword. Brothers, we must be warriors for our family. We must be warriors on the edge of this generation. We must be warriors willing to go to the front lines and to die for the good of the gospel and the hope of the church. We must be warriors, and you don't raise warriors sitting in front of a television playing video games, but instead sharpening your sword for the fight. God help us when the enemy comes for our children if we're holding a milk carton. God help us when the enemy comes for our marriage if we're holding a milk carton. God help us when the enemy comes to divide our church if we're holding a milk carton. Brothers and sisters, we must take up the sword. Older men, older women, we need patriarchs here. We need matriarchs here. We need you leading us in this. We need you showing us what it means to be a seasoned saint and a, and a faithful person. We need that. Spiritual impotence, spiritual incompetence will lead to spiritual death. Death. Understand the stakes here. Understand there is no room for games here. There is no room for error here. 
So what's the difference? What's the difference in the people that Paul has talked about in the, in our, the, the author of Hebrews has talked about in the first three verses versus the, what he's talking about at the end when he t- says, um, for, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What's the difference? So this morning, if you, you find yourself there, man, you're feeling it with me. You're thinking, Cody, like, like I'm not mature, but I want to be. Right now, I'm holding the milk carton, but I'm ready to pick up the sword. Like, like, I have what is good, but I want what is better. I want more. I want to defend my family. How do I get there? What's the difference? It's, it's always been an amazing thing to me that you can have two Christians in the same church, hearing the same teaching, the same words, the same challenges, and respond in completely different ways. One grows in maturity and strength and wisdom and competence, and the other falls away quickly. So what, what, what is the difference? I think what we see here is he says, again, that the sin, they're being rebuked not for what they, uh, not what they need to be taught, but what they need to be taught again. What they need to be taught a second time. That they, they have all heard what he has said. They've all heard the truths of the gospel, and yet they have forgotten them. They have fallen away. They have become complacent. They have, become, they have become casual and indifferent over time. You see, in the Christian life, you're either progressing or you're regressing. You're either growing closer to the Lord or you're falling away from the Lord. There's no, there's no in-between for a, a sinner in a fallen world with the Lord. And so I think what we see here is, is two different things in the life of the mature. The mature, on one hand, savor the word, and on the other hand, practice the word. On one hand, they savor the word, and on the other hand, they practice the word. And by putting these things together, these things converges in to this river of maturity. These things, these two creeks, these two streams come together to form a river of maturity and of ongoing maturity in their life. So what's the difference in the person that hears the word and is moved by it and and lives it out and it changes them versus the other person? One lets it go in one ear and out the other, while the mature hold fast to it. They savor it. They linger in it a bit. They, 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 they taste the milk and they think, man, praise God for what he has done. Praise God for the simple of the, of the gospel. And then they want more of it, right? That's what the word is. Have you ever had a meal that was so good that you ate it, and on one hand, you were satisfied and you were full, and on the other hand, you thought, man, I'd like some more of that anyway. You ever ate a meal that good? Man, y'all just coming out Thanksgiving and Christmas, I know you can testify. That's the picture of the word. We come to this word, and we, we drink of it, and we see its glory, and we see its beauty, and we discover its treasure, and we see the gospel, and how it changes us, and how it affects us, and we think, man, praise God, I am satisfied, but then on the other end, we think, but man, I want more of that, I want more of that, if a little grace is good, a lot of grace must be better, Right? If, 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 like, knowing just the edges of God's glory is good, can you imagine, man, when you get in good, d- deeper with it? If the milk is good, can you imagine the filet mignon when you get there, man? And so you're satisfied on one hand, 
but you so savor it. You so enjoy it. You don't move past the milk. You, you, you hold on to it, but you, you, go, you go deeper, and then all of a sudden, man, you're able to see the, the basic things in a, a depth that you didn't see before. See, depth doesn't dilute the truths of Scripture. It clarifies them. So the mature person is the person that, that goes to the Word, and they have an appetite. Now, you understand Hebrews 5 assumes you have an appetite for the Word. Assumes it. If you have no appetite for the word, you need to look in the mirror and wonder whether or not you have the spirit of God living in you. It assumes an appetite. The difference here is the level of appetite. You know, Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who what? Who knows the word? Who reads the word? No. Teaches the word? No. Who memorizes the word? No, not even that. All of those are good. But Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who delights in the word, delights. Is that how you would define your relationship with the word of God? You can go to it, and you can delight in it, and you can savor it, and you can treasure it, so much so that it makes you hungry for more. This week, maybe, maybe you'd say, man, I'm not there. It's okay. It's okay. Let me, let me tell you what you should do this week. Find a passage of scripture that is familiar to you. Find a passage of scripture that is clear, easy to understand. Maybe you want to go to John chapter 3. and you, John 3, 16 is right in the middle of it, man. If you can't get anything else, you can just stop on John 3, 16 and camp out there for a minute, right? But stay with that one passage all week until you find delight in it. Ask the Lord, I want to find pleasure here. I want to find joy here. I want to find delight here. And stay with that passage until you're able to find delight. But we see that they not only savor it, the mature not only savor the word, but they also practice the word. That's why he says words of righteousness. Literally, it's words that lead to righteous living. He says trained by constant practice so that you might be able to distinguish between good and evil. That these are people that don't just hear the word and don't just savor the word and don't just love the word. These are people that actually live it out. See, to live as a mature Christian is to both love it and live it. If you try to live it without loving it, you become a Pharisee. If you try to love it without living it, you become a hypocrite. To be a mature Christian is to bring both of those things together that you love the word and treasure the word and savor the word. And at the same time, you apply the word and live the word and act it out in your life. But there is actually truth. And that the way that you don't forget the word is by actually applying it. Listen to what John Piper says. John Piper says, the pathway to maturity and to solid bi biblical food is not be first becoming an intelligent person, but becoming an obedient person. What you do with alcohol and sex and money and leisure and food and computer have more to do with your capacity for solid food than where you go to school or what books you read. That is, if you want to go deeper, go get to the deeper stuff. If you want to get to the meat, you must begin by applying the milk you want to know how you'll not forget what the Bible says? When you apply something that it says and it changes your life. When you apply something into your marriage and it changes your marriage. When you apply something to your parenting and it changes your parenting. When you apply something to the, your approach to your employment and it changes the way that you go about work every day. 
When you apply something to the way that you think and it shapes and changes the way that you see the world. As you apply the word and as the word changes you, you will take hold of it more. The reason we forget it is because we don't live it. I wonder how many of you came in this morning intent on having your life changed. You knew God's word was to be preached. You knew God's word was to be read. You knew it was to be delivered. How many of you came in this day certain that you would leave wanting to do something different than you were doing now? How many of you came intent on repenting? How many of you came intent on having the Spirit of God change your heart and change your mind and change your path of life? Or did you come today expecting the preaching to just be background noise? Expecting the songs that are filled with the word that we were going to sing to just be background noise? He says that if we will do this, it will train the way that we, it it will allow us to see the difference between good and evil. As we fight this cosmic war, what we need are men and women, moms and dads, grandmoms and granddads, who can tell the difference between good and evil. Who can tell the difference between what is real and what is counterfeit. What we need are men and women, warriors of the faith, trained in the practices of righteousness that you might live it out and have a a sanctified conscience and a sanctified discernment that you might live wisely among the church and among your family. So our core value is to start with the word. That your first reflex might be to go to the word. You have conflict, start with the word. You have difficulty, start with the word. You're facing circumstances that feel like hell on earth, start with the word. You need encouragement, you're feeling depressed, start with the word. Don't start with the world. Don't start with Oprah. Don't start with Dr. Phil. Don't start with a self-help book. Don't start with uh, modern wisdom. Facebook bloggers. Start with the word that you might endure. Let us go to the word, Lord, in prayer.